Look at that. There's my microphone kicking in. I love it when that happens. Okay, good. Hey, I think you guys can hear me. So that's that's all good news. Uh, okay. <laughs> Very good. Hi! Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It's Tuesday night again, and it's time to uh, discuss some more Tolkien. So, uh, very excited this evening to meet another distinguished guest. We're kind of moving down in the world, right? Having done Glorfindel and uh, Elrond and Gandalf, of course. Uh, And then Arwen, big deal, off on her own in her own little, you know, covered throne-like area. Uh, And now... Glowin, which is a big deal, like a super big deal, and of course, in some ways, an even bigger deal for Frodo. Nah, I won't say bigger deal, but, um, you know, I bet you that to Frodo, meeting Glowin was at least as big a deal as meeting Gorfindel, because Gorfindel, he doesn't know, right? Uh, Glowin is somebody who is front. This is like Bilbo's story come to life. Now, you know, Elrond is in the story too, right? But it's not quite the same. Um, J.J. Glowen does have lines in The Hobbit. He is the one who famously says that Bilbo looked more like a grocer than a burglar. Uh, it's Glowen's words that cause Bilbo to bust back into his uh, parlor and say, uh, pardon me if I've overheard words that you were saying. Um, uh, uh, and yes, Lilith, he is uh, one of the two fire-starting skilled dwarves. Uh, he and he and Owen are the two who are particularly good uh, at lighting fires. And he wore a white hood. Um, those are the... Uh, um, those are the, the, the primary things we get associated with Glowen. After Chapter 1, uh, he doesn't play a, a, a part, again, from his uh, not-to-be-underestimated fire-starting skills. Uh, he doesn't play a very significant role. Uh, I'm trying to uh, remember. Now, Crownless, that's interesting. What instrument does Glowen play? Doesn't he? I thought they all had an instrument of one sort or other. Um, he's not listed in the instrument list in Chapter 1? That's peculiar. I never noticed that before. Um, I'd have to check. I I thought he was lumped in uh, with Owen, but... Hmm. Anyway. uh, We'll have to see. We'll have to see. I don't think he plays the triangle, Toromarthen. Not nearly elaborate enough for that particular musical party. Uh, but anyway, um, all right, look at it here. You, we're like digressing before we even start. Let me do quick announcements because there aren't very many announcements. Um, I mentioned, I think, last week that uh, our fall courses uh, are open now for registration at Signum. Uh, so uh, if you're thinking about auditing a course or maybe even applying for our program, there's, now is a great time to do that. Uh, we have a, a, a new course uh, being offered this fall. Um, on Germanic myths and legends. So this is an in-translation class. We do a, it's taught by one of our old Norse faculty, uh, Paul Peterson, but uh, it's not, uh, it's not an old Norse language 
class. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to uh, study uh, Norse mythology, of course, you know, everybody knows, right, that Tolkien was deeply influenced by Norse mythology, and both uh, uh, Lewis and Tolkien loved Norse mythology for their entire adult lives. Um, so if you've ever wanted the chance to read through um, uh, Germanic myths and legends, all of that northernness stuff that uh, uh, that meant so much to Lewis and Tolkien. This is a, a fantastic opportunity. Uh, so um, uh, I definitely um, I definitely encourage uh, you looking into that. It's a brand new course, so it'll be taught live this fall, and uh, it's going to be you know so it's it's open for people to audit it either to to do a premiere audit as we call it, which is just just the opportunity to sit in on the lectures live and, and ask questions and things. Uh, or you can do a discussion audit where you uh, do that, where you sit in on the lectures and you participate in the discussion sections too. You just don't have to write the papers. Um, so anyway, those that definitely think about that uh, for the coming fall. Um, and uh, yeah, the other thing of course is the event that is coming up this weekend. It's Weatherstock this week. And uh, I'm going to be speaking at Weatherstock at 6 p.m. server time on Saturday the 20th. I'm going to, I'm going to give a talk on Weathertop. I mean, that is, I will be on Weathertop giving a talk. I won't necessarily be giving a talk on the subject of Weathertop, though I don't need to tell you guys <laughs> that I could give a talk on Weathertop. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I have to admit I'm a little bit tempted. Like, it won't surprise you to hear that it was the first thing that occurred to me when I was like, what should I talk about on Weathertop? And I'm like, oh, I know. And then I'm like, no, no, I really, I really shouldn't do that. Um, but, um, anyway... That's uh, so. We'll, we'll see. topic to be announced later. Uh, probably not more discussion of the attack under Weathertop. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, exactly as Druid's Fire just said, it's going to be a simulcast on the Lotro Twitch channel as well as on uh, here on the Signum uh, Twitch channel. So uh, you can tune in either place uh, if you want to catch the talk on Saturday afternoon, evening, 6 p.m., wherever that happens to fall for you. Um, it's a little late for folks uh, uh, across the sea out there in Europe, but it's not totally unmanageable. So. Uh
Okay? Good. There we are. All right. Sorry about that. Something's going on with my microphone. I don't like that. Okay. Um, good. Let me, uh, let me just check if I'm surprised it didn't go out. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here like, wait, it didn't go out? The audio didn't go out on Discord? It should have gone out on Discord. What on earth is going on? Okay. It's fine. Fine, fine, fine. Okay. Excellent. Anyhow. Um, so, um, I was talking. Oh, yeah. Frodo coming in. Uh, so my my impression of that passage is that it's giving us Frodo's impressions as he come in, comes into the room. And the first thing that he sees are, is the people, right? And he, I think he's seeing those from a distance. So to me, it makes perfect sense that it could be Frodo's point of view um, because he's not necessarily seated yet. Uh, and we get something like that um, at the beginning here. Um, this is the transition, of course, from the description of Arwen here. Um Such loveliness and living thing Frodo had never seen before nor imagined in his mind, and he was both surprised and abashed to find that he had a seat at Elrond's table among all these folks so high and fair. Though he had a suitable chair and was raised upon several cushions, he felt very small and rather out of place, but that feeling quickly passed. The feast was merry and the food all that his hunger could desire. It was some time before he looked about him again or even turned to his neighbors. He looked first for his friends. Sam had begged to be allowed to wait on his master, but had been told that for this time he was a guest of honor. Frodo could see him now, sitting with Pippin and Merry at the upper end of one of the side tables close to the dais. He could see no sign of Strider. Okay. Um, Excellent. So, again, the transition from Arwen, such loveliness and living thing... Frodo had never seen before nor imagined in his mind, right? That's, that's high praise, right? Um, uh, that such loveliness and living thing Frodo had never seen before nor imagined in his mind. Um, and he was surprised and abashed to find that he had a seat at Elrond's table among all these folk, all four of them that he's been looking at, right? That we've had described to us, um, the fact that he has a suitable chair. I've never been quite sure what the word suitable exactly means. Suited to him or suited to make up for like, is it a high chair? Basically is Frodo sitting in a high chair? Is that what he's saying? Like, so does this mean suitable in the sense of a hobbit chair, which would mean a low chair or suitable in the sense that, you know, if he were just sitting in a normal chair, he'd be like, you know, this way to the table. So, you know, they've they've put him up in a high chair, right? Um, they've given him a special chair to help him reach his food, right? I kind of think it's probably the latter, right? Um, and he also has to have several cushions uh, on top of that. Now, we know... Right. Bilbo has been living here for some time already, so they're used to Hobbit proportions. Right. Uh, So there's every reason to believe that there are special Hobbit chairs, that is chairs for Hobbits to sit in so that they can sit at the table with every at these same tables as everyone else. Right. So they're going to have a whole line of Hobbit chairs, clearly. You know, I don't think that there's sort of a problem uh, 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 like that. Um, but um, 
but yeah, I I I do um I do kind of think that he um uh that he's he's got to be sitting up in a up in a high chair here. Um He feels rather small. He feels very small and rather out of place. But that feeling quickly passed. Um I assume that the feeling passes when the food comes, right? When he stops thinking about that. It's hard for me to understand how it would pass in any other way, right? Uh, you know, um, what, having sat, you know, at the table for five minutes, he's suddenly like, actually, nah, yeah, no, I, I pretty much belong here, right? I can't believe that. So I think that is a testimony to once, you know, the actual feasting, got going, right, then he, you know, sort of felt in his element again. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arden Cran is wondering if it's suitable in that it has decorative carving and, and, and polish commensurate with his place of honor. Well, okay. Um, notice we're told nothing about honor. I mean, Obviously, he is being honored by being seated here at this table, right? And we're told that the feast is in his honor. So that's a big deal. But I don't see anything. Um, in fact, I think that if Frodo's chair had been some kind of super special throne-like business, uh, you know, which clearly put him at the center of attention that would have been commented upon, right? He's already uncomfortable and feeling like he doesn't really deserve to sit at this table, right? He's like, you know, one of the kids eating at the big uh, people's table at Thanksgiving. Um, it's an American thing, but I'm sure others can relate to it. Um, anyway, I mean, that's that's how he feels already. Um, all we're told about the chair is that it's suitable. That it's suitable for him, I assume, since what is immediately described after it's called suitable is uh, that he's raised up on several cushions and felt very small, right? Um, uh, and again, notice the syntax there. The, the main sentence, that is the independent clause of that sentence, is he felt very small. Right, and the two supporting clauses, the two the two uh, 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 descriptive clauses, is though he had a suitable chair and was raised upon several cushions. So, despite those two factors, his chair being suitable and his cushions raising him up, he felt small. Right. So those are those are all adverbial clause, clauses describing how he's feeling small. Right. Despite those circumstances. So that's why I'm pretty sure that the suitability of the chair is for his height uh, and uh, to um, uh, to raise him up, I suspect. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, JJ, that, I think that's probably a good way to say it. A suitable chair is in not a massively oversized chair that would make him feel smaller. Yes, exactly. He's not sitting in a tiny... So I suspect the suitability of the chair probably has more to do with its width than its height, right? Um, uh, that is... Yeah, JJ, I think that's that's exactly it. He's not, you know, made to feel like... You know, he's sitting in this chair for somebody proportioned very differently from him. The proportions of the chair are right. Um, and, 
Yeah, I mean, for Thoughtless, I agree. Him getting up on the cushions has got to be a bit challenging, right? Um, I don't think we need to reenact that necessarily, but I'm not against it. <laughs> but I think he can probably manage. But it's going to be difficult, right? Definitely going to be difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, Spiritual Boulder says, in other words, they didn't give him a chair custom-made for a Lendl himself or something like that. Right, exactly. Uh, the custom-made for a Lendl chair they're doubtless saving for Aragorn, right on the other side of the table. Um, exactly. J.J. Bjorn's chair is the other thing that comes to mind. Right, Bjorn had... He, his was the only chair in the hall, right, uh, in The Hobbit, when uh, when we're feasting there. Um, but it is this big, wide, low low chair, but 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 broad, of course, designed to fit Bjorn's massive frame. So, um, yes, he is not going. He doesn't feel like he's sitting in that chair. Um, the primary reason that I think that um, it's the food and the eating that. Uh, makes Frodo feel at ease is the transition there, right? But that feeling quickly passed. The feast was merry, and the food all that his hunger could desire, right? Um, so that seems to me fairly clearly what is setting him at ease there. Um, now, Ardent Crown, you had mentioned before uh, that um, you were wondering why, um, and Cecilia was asking the same thing, um, if Frodo wrote this, then why, oh, why do we not have a description of the food? I'm dying to know what was offered at the feast. That's a great question. Uh, and an interesting observation, why we don't uh, hear any, even just a little bit, of description of this. Um, and yeah, Spiritual Boulder mentions bannocks, which of course we know they were baking bannocks or oat cakes, uh, which of course is what the elves were baking, uh, the Tralalalali elves in Chapter 3 of The Hobbit. Um, I'm trying to think if we have any positive evidence of anything else being eaten in Rivendell. I mean, I assume they do. But is there actually anything apart from that one reference to Bannock's baking in the song, that we actually concretely get. I can't think of any. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, um, yeah, there's there's Miravor, exactly, but that's not exactly either a food or a feast. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Belongs Bond, you're right. It's it, Tolkien is very specific with Bombadil's food. Well, that's actually a little bit of a bad data point because when um, they mention the food, you know, yellow cream and honeycomb and bright be- bread and butter, um, that's a quote from the poem. It's like a line, word for word, uh, from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem. Um, so, yeah... Um, that's a bit of a bad data point. In fact, so the Hobbit, I think, leads us to expect descriptions of food, right? We get, we learn a lot about Bilbo's larders, right? In chapter one of the Hobbit, we get 
a certain amount of description of what the wood elves are eating, especially from Bomber, right, who's dreamed about it. We get, of course, from some fairly detailed description of what they're eating in Bjorn's halls. Um, we get lots of complaining about the cram, right? So there's a lot of description of food in The Hobbit. Not to mention what's inside all the barrels, JJS, exactly, the apples and the butter and everything else. But if you think about it, that's not been true anywhere in The Lord of the Rings. We get an indirect description of what they had at Woodall. Right, good, Fourth Dauntless was just thinking the same thing. Um, that's where we get it, Fourth Dauntless. The bread is uh, uh, as, as delicious as a fine white loaf to one who is starving. Um, we get the apples. Uh, uh, you know, Sam saying, if I could grow apples like that, then I would call myself a gardener. Um we get the reference to mushrooms, right? Uh, and uh, uh, Mrs. Maggot's basket of mushrooms that gets sent back with them. Um, uh, but we don't get... You know, we're told the good plain food that is set before them at the Prancing Pony, right? We do get some of that. Uh, yeah, good. Belongsbond was just thinking of that, too. Um, so we get some. Some, but not as systematic, not, not as much, not as frequently as we get in The Hobbit. I mean, if you think about it, what do they eat at Bilbo's party? Right? We're told that they're eating all day long, right? But we're not told what. There is a single food item mentioned by name? I can't really remember. It's only vague terms, like their favorite dainties, right? Um... Uh, I don't recall any specific um, allusion to food there. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's something I'd never really noticed this before. Um, but but yeah, the the kind of I want to say systematic. Perhaps that's not quite fair um, or not quite sufficient. Um, but, uh, or I think wrong in character is what I feel. Systematic is not how the Hobbit descriptions feel, but nevertheless, systematic in the sense that almost every time they sit down to a meal, think, think of the roast mutton, right? I mean, the food plays a pretty major role in addition to, as, as a couple of you were pointing out, the eggs and bacon that Bilbo's always dreaming about and fantasizing about. Um, we get a lot of food in The Hobbit. Um, the description of food is very, very much more infrequent um, in The Lord of the Rings. And that's interesting. I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but I think it's about a difference in tone. I wonder... I wonder if it's about a difference in audience. I'm not sure. I wonder. That is... It seems to me... With... It seems to me more of a child audience thing, perhaps... I'm thinking, I'm just speculating about this right now. It's certainly part of the genre, right? Think about the description of meals and what people eat 
in The Wind in the Willows. Think about the description of what Lucy and Mr. Tumnus have it for tea in The Why and the Witch in the Wardrobe, not to mention the Turkish Delight um, and the Beavers, right? Again, like The Why and the Witch in the Wardrobe is that there's a lot of food described in that book. Um, And it seems to me like it's, it's part of the, part of the genre, right? It's part of the, um, uh, sort of focus. Um, and I wonder if Tolkien has kind of left that um, behind a little bit as he has ceased to be writing explicitly for children. Brick Tales, absolutely, yes. The tea that uh, Father Christmas delivers, right? Not just the tea, but all of the food to go. He delivers a full meal on a platter uh, to them. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I thought, Belongsmond. I know they eat in Conspiracy Unmasked, but he doesn't describe the meal apart from saying that they ate the mushrooms that Mrs. Maggot packed for them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think that food is a way... The description of food is a way to convey certain things. Um, and it doesn't happen here. And I... I don't know. It doesn't seem like a very good explanation, or at least not a sufficient explanation, to say that it seems to me to have to do with the shift in audience. Um, it was definitely... Uh, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clearly a trend in children's literature of that time to be very food-heavy. Um, but... Um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily that doesn't answer the question. So, what is the effect of not doing that in the Lord of the Rings? Um, anyway, my point is merely, in fact, if we judge only from the Fellowship of the Ring, we don't really have that much um, reason to expect to know more about the details of the feast, the description or the lack of description of the actual dishes that they're eating, the actual foodstuffs being consumed at the feast, uh, is really kind of on par with what, uh, we've gotten, uh, to this point in the book. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, um, and yeah, the places where we do get more food description in the Lord of the Rings, and I know we're all kind of brainstorming this right now, um, seem to me to be more about, like, world building, right? Um, It's important to know what kind of food they're given at the Prancing Pony, um, because it's a big part of them being set at ease. They've just come into this town, and they're in this big people in, right? Uh, And remember Sam's discomfort with the huge buildings, right? And wondering if a Hobbit family could take them in. And the first thing that they find, the first thing that they they hear is the sound, the pleasant, happy sound of the common room uh, uh, coming down the hall, which is the first reassurance they get. Uh, And the second, of course, is the good uh, plain food uh, that they are given. And so I think that that plays an important role. Um, connecting, you know, showing how they've not really gone that far, right? The culture of Brie is very similar to the culture of the Shire. It's important, right? Just as similarly, um, you know, what the food that they get at uh, Isengard, right, from the flotsam and jetsam of Isengard, that too tells us some important... It's not just a, and now we shall have lavish descriptions of food, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway. Um, yeah, good. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So, my conclusion is... Um, my conclusion, tentative conclusion, is that we shouldn't necessarily expect to be told what is here at the feast. Um, and what we are told fits in the sense that the important thing is the effect on Frodo's, on Frodo as he's sitting there, right? And also, it would seem a little bit odd in some ways to be like, describing Gorfindel and Elrond and Arwen and then, you know, the pork chops or whatever it is that they eat, you know, at the, like that would be a little bit odd, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we're just told that it is all that his hunger could desire. The feast was merry and the food all that his hunger could desire. Um, it was some time, um, it was some time before he looked about him again or even turned to his neighbors. That itself is also kind of interesting, right? And seems to be a little bit of a joke at Frodo's expense, perhaps, right? That, um, he is so focused on eating that he's not even greeted the person who's sitting next to him, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, I think that's... Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit funny, right? Because, you know, even if you're pretty hungry, it's not that hard to, like, chat to the people next to you, and you'd think he'd be kind of looking around, or maybe it's designed to sort of, again, show us how self-conscious he is, right? That he's kind of, like, within himself and just eating because he feels like an interloper, so he's trying to not draw attention to himself at first. Uh, I'm not really... I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, oh, yeah, Matt, we'll get to the discomfort of uh, Sam and Frodo. With Frodo, I think it's very simple, right? Frodo is uncomfortable uh, because he feels small and rather out of place, right? He 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 can tell it's an act of condescension for Elrond and company to give him a seat at this high table, right? Um, again, think about those descriptions of Elrond and Gandalf and Glorfindel, right? They are lords of great might and power. They, He's not, right? Um, and really, he hasn't done all that much yet. He's done well to bring the ring to Rivendell, right? And everyone is honoring him for doing what he's doing. Um, but he he had has not yet taken his place among the wise, nor does he feel that appropriate, right? So with Frodo, it seems to be really just a question of him um, feeling like he's being honored uh, beyond what he deserves and feeling really out of place, right? Courtesy is being shown to him. But... Um, uh, Courtesy is being shown to him, but he it makes him uncomfortable. He would kind of rather not be elevated to the point that he is. Um, uh, not, I don't necessarily mean the cushions, but uh, in a sense, the cushions there too. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, Matthew, you're right that um, 
Frodo is just getting over his injury, and this is his first real meal since the flight, which, yes, he's not really eaten for days, and so he's he's pretty focused on his work here, right? And I'm not saying I can't understand that. Um, but again, it seems to me to... Um, it seems to me to suggest he not like greed, right? That there's Frodo like stuffing his face because he's so famished, but rather Frodo still kind of settling in, right? And it's not until he's been there for a while uh, and, um, uh, you know, eaten plenty because I'm sure he is quite hungry uh, that he then finally turns to his neighbors and he looks first for his friends. Now, um, that Sam is not going to be allowed to wait on his master um, is not surprising, right? Because for this time, he is a guest of honor. Um, Frodo, as the ring bearer, is put at the head table, right? Um, all of the hobbits are being honored here. All four of them are being honored. Um, Frodo is given is being given a seat, Next, I mean, you guys were joking about, you know, the seat custom made for Elendil when he was visiting, right? But, like, this is the table that Elendil would have sat in, right? So whether or not he's sitting in Elendil's chair, probably not, because it's a suitable chair. Um, but nevertheless, like, whether or not he's sitting in an actual chair made for Elendil, um, um, I, it, it was um, still... This is like it could well be like the table position that Elendil might have sat at when he was visiting, right? So, I mean, this is he is very conscious of the fact that this is like royalty and beyond royalty, right? Uh, I mean, it's not, ju- I mean, mere royalty. I mean, what is a king, right, compared with an elf lord? Um, uh, so, um Anyway, yeah. And I know, uh, Spiritual Boulders, I know you were joking about Elendil's chair being made for somebody much, much taller, right? As he's Elendil the Tall. Uh, so, uh, so no, I get that. But, it, I mean, it, it works in the other way as well, right? I mean, he's a guest, but you think of, like, the list of guests that have been invited to sit at the high table there. I mean, again, this is a big, like, Gilgalad sat there, right? Uh, certainly, Gilgalad sat there. Celebrimbor might have sat there. Maybe, right? Um, I, I, you know, get, has Galadriel ever been to Rivendell? Probably, right? Um, I mean, seriously. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it's, there's, I think that uh, Frodo, again, this seems to be the primary thing that uh, Frodo is self-conscious about, Right? Um, uh, and that he's, um, that he's not deserving now again, but back to Sam, um, Sam has a, is a guest of honor as well. So he and Pippin and Mary, um, are at the upper end of one of the side tables close to the dice so that it's, you know, he's not like in the other room with the servants. Um, he's just at one of the lower tables. So like just as in a, in a medieval hall, you know, you have the, you'd have the high table where the, the, the king and queen and the, 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 the great ones would sit. Right. But, and then you have the place, not where the like peasantry are, but where like all of the, the, the thanes and barons and, uh, and, uh, knights and everything would be sitting. Right. Um, so these are still places of honor in the feast hall of Elrond. You know, they're not like, uh, you know, eating off a plate in the hall or something like that. Um, this is 
this is a this is a big deal. JJ says it's like a wedding reception with assigned seating. It's exactly like that. In fact, uh, that's the only place I can think of in the modern world where it works the same way, right? You've got at a wedding reception, you've got the head table for the bride and groom and like the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom and maybe a sibling or something like that, right? Um, and then you've got the rest of the tables and everyone is an invited guest, right? Everyone is everyone is there by invitation. Um, to be in the room is a big deal, right? To be in the room is to be part of the celebration, is to be part of the feast. Um, Frodo is at the head table, right? Like the captain's table on a on a on a ship, sure, something like that. I think wedding reception, I think, is probably something more of us have actually experienced uh, than that, or than a state dinner. I, I suppose it probably works the same way at a state dinner, but I don't even know Druid's Fire if that's even. I, 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 how am I supposed to know? Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, the wedding reception image, I think, is a is a is a really good one, right? Um, and imagine like you might feel a little bit self-conscious, right? If you were, like, placed at the head table, uh, you know, at, like, the wedding of somebody that you didn't, you, you, you barely knew, right? Or, like, a really famous person, like, and you were, felt like you were included in the list of invitees as a um, sort of a technicality, right? As a as sort of a courtesy, and now you're being asked to sit at the head, ta- the head table. That, you know, would be... It seems a, a, a vague shadow, a very distant shadow of what um, uh, what Frodo seems to be feeling here. But again, back to Sam. Sam wants to wait on Frodo. He wants to be allowed to serve him, to bring him his food and clear away his plate and all that kind of... He feels like this is his place, right? Um, he is Frodo's manservant. He is, he is, he's, he's there to do for Mr. Frodo, right? And it's not just that he's like, this is my job, um, you know, this is my station in life, both of which I think Sam would say, um, but it's not just that, right? I think it's also at this particular moment, right? Uh, that is, Frodo has just arisen. Remember how delighted Sam was, and you know we talked several weeks ago now um, about the reunion with Sam and Sam taking his hand and all of the uh, the affection that we could see there. It, Sam, that was, although it's been several weeks in exploring Lord of the Rings world, it's been what an hour um, uh, since um, that happened in Sam's world. So Sam is still overflowing uh, with relief and happiness uh, at Frodo's being up and around at all. So the idea that he would want to be right there at Frodo's elbow does not seem to me hard to understand at all, uh, of course. Um, He wants to be with Frodo, but not sitting next to him. Sam certainly doesn't want a seat at the high table, Uh, but but he would like to be there, right, Uh, to serve and to wait on uh, uh, to wait on Frodo. And I certainly agree, Galandar, that waiting on Frodo would help Sam feel more at ease. Um, he is much less comfortable being served than he is serving. Um, and absolutely, he would be much more comfortable at this feast if he could wait on him. And this seems to me the interesting thing here, right? Um, Something that's easy to miss in this sentence. Sam had begged to be allowed to wait on his master, but had been told that for this time he was a guest of honor. The phrase I would want to emphasize is, for this time. It doesn't say, Sam begged to be allowed to wait on his master, but he had been told that he was a guest of honor. 
That's not what the elves tell him. The elves don't say to Sam, no, no, not in our house, my friend. You don't wait on anyone, right? You are a guest of honor as long as you're here, and we're going to be serving you as long as you're here. They don't say that to Sam, right? What they tell him is, not today. Not at this feast. At this, this is a feast. To, this, this, this is an important event, right? This is the feast to celebrate your arrival, the, 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 the victory, right, of the four of you getting here uh, from the Shire. And thus, you are a guest of honor, and it would be not appropriate for you to wait on Frodo. You're, you, we're celebrating you, right? So today, you can't wait on him. But it's, that implies to me that he will be allowed to wait on Frodo at other meals, right? So tomorrow, when they come to dinner, uh, Sam probably will be waiting on Frodo. Um, and that seems to me to be very f- perfectly fitting with the courtesy of the elves. I think the elves would note perfectly well that Sam is not most comfortable, right, uh, being the guest of honor. They insist on his being the guest of honor today. But I think that they would, even just for his own sake, be happy to let him wait on Frodo, knowing that that's where he's going to be happiest and most comfortable. Um so, um, so yeah, I do suspect that that on other days Sam will be waiting on Frodo, and the elves will doubtless, uh, you know, smile with affection to see it, right? Uh, and with wisdom and understanding, knowing that you know this is how they can most make this one of their guests of honor happy, right? Is to allow him to serve. Um, that's um. Uh, again, that's just sort of a uh, guess on my part, but that's... Uh, I don't see why he would say for this time uh, if this was going to be a blanket ban against waiting on Frodo the whole time there in, uh, there in Rivendell. Um, and yes, I certainly agree. The lack of nobility in service is a very modern conception as well. Absolutely. Um uh, it what it is a place of honor to wait on someone of high honor was a place of honor. I mean, remember, uh, I mean, if you if you see it nowhere else, you would hear it in like if you uh, watched any uh, um, you know historical dramas set in like the uh, 16th or 17th centuries or something like that, right? Where like you know, a Tudor monarch is being waited upon by, like, the, you know, the baronesses and uh, duchesses of the land, right? Like, that's what happens. That's how it works. Um, uh, so it's certainly not a question of, like, oh, he's serving unto. That is a menial position, which is below anyone of uh, of worth. It's not below anyone of worth. Um, but that's certainly not Sam's focus, right? Uh, uh, being on his, uh, being on his dignity. Uh, certainly he just wants to serve Frodo. Um, yeah. And JJ, that's a really good way of, uh, uh, of, of thinking about it. The elves understand the honor of serving, but Sam must allow others to have that honor too at times. Yes. And what Sam is uncomfortable with is, you know, being the one who is, being honored like that, right? 
But also, yeah, again, I think more than anything, it's just he really wants to be the one to wait on Frodo today. Uh, so this particular timing uh, is, I think, challenging for him in that way. And Matt, you're absolutely right that Merry and Pippin will have the honor of serving uh, at the high table at the end of the book. Yes, they will be um, uh, they will be serving Aragorn and Eomir, right, uh, at the Field of Cormallon. Absolutely. Um, yes. Good. Good. Um, yeah. Flamifer says that squires and pages had to wait on their knights as part of their training to be knights. Absolutely. And remember, that's kind of uh, Pippin's role in Minas Tirith also. I mean, he waits on Denethor. Um you know, bringing him food and stuff and, and admitting that it's hard for a hobbit to stand there and watch somebody else eat. Um, but yeah, he does that in Minas Tirith. And it is a, a squire. In fact, Paige, you'll remember, is how Baragond um, categorizes him, right? Um, uh, Baragond thought it was his lord's whim to take him a noble page. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. That's definitely the context there. Less so, of course, with Sam and Frodo. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Let's keep going. Next to Frodo on his right sat a dwarf of important appearance, richly dressed. His beard, very long and forked, was white, nearly as white as the snow-white cloth of his garments. He wore a silver belt, and round his neck hung a chain of silver and diamonds. Frodo stopped eating to look at him. "'Welcome and well met,' said the dwarf, turning towards him. Then he actually rose from his seat and bowed. "'Glowin' at your service,' he said, and bowed still lower. "'Frodo Baggins, at your service and your family,' said Frodo correctly, rising in surprise and scattering his cushions. "'Am I right in guessing that you are the Glowin, one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield?' "'Quite right,' answered the dwarf, gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. "'And I do not ask, for I have already been told, that you are the kinsman and adopted heir of our friend Bilbo the Renowned. Allow me to congratulate you on your recovery.' "'Thank you very much,' said Frodo. "'Um, Frodo has good manners, Carita, and this is a, uh, this is a wonderful moment, right?' Where has he learned his manners, right? He has learned his manners from Bilbo, right? But from Bilbo's story, right? You can learn these same manners from reading The Hobbit. Um, this shows, I mean, like in the very moment that he recognizes Glowin, uh, you know, you can see all of these, uh, uh, you know, polite expressions and bowings and taking off of hoods and things that uh, happen repeatedly throughout The Hobbit, all running through uh, Frodo's memory, right? Um, because Lilith, yes, this is dwarf manners. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so, by the way, <laughs> Back to the pressing subject of Frodo's chair. So, I'm assuming that Tolkien is speaking poetically when he says that Frodo rose from his seat and bowed. 
he must certainly have descended from his seat, right, in order to bow, um, scattering his cushions. Uh, I, I mean, even, of course, the fact that his cushions are scattered suggests that he has, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, he and his pile of cushions have sort of, as, as he's sliding off of his cushions down uh, towards the ground, right, this cascade of cushions have has followed him down off the chair. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I've got to think that he is, in fact, dropping his altitude significantly in order to bow uh, to Glowin. But still, nevertheless, um, I... It is still rising from his seat in the sense that he was sitting and is now standing. Um, yeah, Irinda says, I always pictured him standing on his chair to bow. I can't think he would actually do that, but yes, it, that that he would be rising then, right? It's the only circumstance in which I could imagine him actually elevating himself in order to bow. Um, but I, I gotta think that that would be impolite uh, to stand on your chair uh, and bow. Exactly, Mad Violinist. He was on his tuchus, and now he's on his feet, right? So uh, that's it. So, yeah. Um, and uh, somebody was... Um, let's see. Who was uh, asking about whether Glowin has cushions uh, as well... Um, yeah, Galandar was asking if Glowin was also supplied with a suitable chair and perhaps cushions uh, as well, as he can't be that much taller than Frodo. But I think the difference is he's not surprised, right? That's the point of the cushions, right? The point of the scattering of the cushions is Frodo's haste uh, in his surprise uh, to to show this courtesy, right? Glowin has been waiting, right? He's been sitting there next to Frodo. So, like, he's, he knows who Frodo is, right? And he's sitting there waiting, and Frodo's not looked at him. And we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but Frodo's worked his way through, certainly worked his way through a good plate of food, at least, by this time, right? So here's Glowin sitting next to the famous hobbit in whose honor this feast is being thrown, right? And notice, I think, that even Glowin's even the seating arrangements here, that is, Glowin sitting next to Frodo, seems to me also to be an act of courtesy on Elrond's part, right? Uh, he's got to know that Frodo is going to be delighted to meet the Glowin companion of the great Thorin Oakenshield, right? And so it seems to me very likely that he... Um, uh, that he seated them next to each other on purpose uh, in this way. Um, anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, so, yeah. Zephan says he's always been disappointed that renowned is not capitalized. Uh, uh, Bilbo the renowned. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it's kind of implicitly capitalized. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it, he could have put Frodo in a seat of honor, like right next to Glorfindel, right between Glorfindel and Erestor or something, which might have been an even more honorable position for Frodo at the feast. Uh, but instead, I, I think rather kindly, 
right? They put him uh, next to Glowin. Um, Frodo's uh, surprise, haste, right? As he descends and scatters his cushions. So Frodo finally looks at Glowin. Glowin then takes the time to stand up and notice that it's, uh, uh, it's very ceremonious, right? He actually rose from his seat and bowed. Glowin at your service, he said, and bowed again, still lower, right? Um, and here's Glowin, of course, uh, but it's just such a delightful moment. Glowin is just showing dwarvish courtesy, right? This is standard dwarvish courtesy, but it's so much more than that to Bilbo, right? Here is a piece of good old Bilbo's stories coming alive right in front of him, right? There is not only a dwarf bowing before him and saying, at your service, right? But it's Glowin bowing and saying, at your service, right? It's like, here's Frodo now all of a sudden inside Bilbo's story. And now he has been already, right? Ever since he arrived uh, at... Uh, uh, at Rivendell, right? He has been inside of Bilbo's story in a sense. But this is a much more kind of intimate connection with Bilbo's story. Um, yeah, exactly. Spiritual Bolt is exactly like he did before the Unexpected Party. And you know that Frodo is going to be thinking about that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, Lilith is asking, is this passage another instance where Tolkien provides perspective and context, demonstrating and reminding us of the differences between Frodo's quest and Bilbo's adventure? Maybe. I don't necessarily feel any, you know, I don't see any reason to think we're being given a clear reminder that the, you know, sort of the nature or quality of Frodo's adventure. I mean, we know it is different. I'm not obviously challenging that. Um, But I don't see a a reminder of that embedded in this passage. Rather, it seems to be just, from Frodo's point of view, a pure nostalgia thing, right? Um, That think about... So, Lilith, thinking back to our introduction to The Last Homely House, and remember how the reference of The Last Homely House, East of the Sea derailed us for an entire class session as we were thinking about how by adding that east of the sea Frodo has taken the last homely house concept from the Hobbit and recontextualized it, right? So that was one example, Lilith, of when Frodo comes into contact with Bilbo's old story and, uh, but it's different now, right? Seen from Frodo's point of view within the context of Frodo's adventure uh, entire adventure, of course, as we were arguing, the return journey as well, as we were arguing about the last homely house passage. Um, with here, I do, here I don't see that nearly as much. It just seems to be primarily the delight of encountering someone else who knew Bilbo, right? A real character from the... And again, not just a character from the story, but doing what he's doing, right? Bowing and saying at your service. Again, it's like... Uh, uh, you know, the whole story coming to life. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Boomful, uh, exa- I, I couldn't, that's a, that, that's a good, uh, 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 memory there. Um, it would be like a young dwarf, like if Gimli came to the Shire uh, and 
Bilbo actually was sitting at the table with a cold saying, thank you very much, right? Um, it would be almost the same kind of thing, right? Like, oh, just like out of dad's stories, right? And there it's exactly the same, right? Um, yes, yes. I mean, it is, it, is, it is like a living recap of the, of the story. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. And white is Glowin's color, crownless, absolutely. So it's not... Now, so notice, we do get an, an element of, well, not exactly of strangeness. Strangeness, again, there is familiarity. He's still in white, right? He's still in his color, uh, which has always been white. But he looks different, right? His beard now is much longer and forked and white, right? It's white like Balin's beard was, Um but now Glowin is old as well, right? Um, and his he's wearing snow-white garments, right? Quite different. More white, right? More clean, more rich, um, less worn than the garments in which he showed up at, uh, at Bag End, certainly, for the unexpected party. And he's wearing a silver belt and a chain of silver and diamonds around his neck, right? This is clearly a mature and prosperous Glowin. So he knows he's seeing Glowin later, right? So it's not literally like Bilbo's story come alive in front of him, and yet, um, despite those elements of strangeness, despite that evidence of the passage of time, yet to find that he is connecting with a with another person from Bilbo's story has got to be really, uh, really awesome in that way. Um... Another lord of dignity and power. Yes, in a different way, right? Um, but yeah, we certainly get more dignity and power from Glowin than uh, than we got back in the beginning of The Hobbit, no question. Um, JJ's wondering, could Glowin have been chosen to reminisce about Bilbo the Renowned specifically because he was the one who originally thought Bilbo looked more like a grocer than a burglar? Uh, so we're reminded just how much the dwarves' opinion changed. Um whether or not... So I don't know if Glowin is thinking about that, and I don't know if Frodo is thinking about that, but I can't imagine, J.J., that Tolkien is not thinking about that. Glowin didn't have so many lines that Tolkien is going to have forgotten his most famous one, right? Um, so... Um, I think, uh, yes, it's certainly a very fun correspondence uh, that is a corresponding passage that the one who uh, most openly dissed Bilbo in chapter one of The Hobbit uh, is now calling him, you know, the, the, calling the one who looked more like a grocer than a burglar, uh, Bilbo the Renowned. Um, and that's uh, really fun. Um And he's courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. So, fourth Dauntless, this suggests to me that Frodo does need help. I think an elf might have hoisted him up onto his cushions. I mean, there must be elves uh, uh, helping people, right? You know, waiting on the tables and stuff. So Frodo was doubtless accompanied to his seat uh, and quite likely helped 
up onto it. I mean, as what Thoughtless was implying, it's not, you try it sometime, right? It is non-trivial to climb up like on a pile of three cushions in a chair. I mean, you know, I always used to have to have to hoist my own kids up when they got uh, uh, hoisted up like that. Um, it's it's tricky. It's tricky to do. Uh, and Glowin assists him. Uh, uh, courteously back into his seat or up onto his seat, right? Um, uh, interesting. Yeah, and it's near impossible to do so gracefully, Gatriana, absolutely. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Glowen's humility, right? Not only in, uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of an embarrassing situation for Frodo several ways, right? Um, but, um, uh, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly, JJ says. There's not an elf watching asking, oh, you want down, Frodo? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, nor does he probably have one of those seat belts that I always used to use with my children to keep them getting down from the table before they were supposed to. Um, but, um, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. Um, excellent. Um, notice also the juxtaposition there. Am I right in guessing that you are the Glowen, one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield? Quite right, answered the dwarf, gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. Right? Um, Glowen acknowledging that he is the Glowen. Like, I'm super famous. Right? And that he has this legendary position as one of the twelve companions of the Great Thorn. In the moment in which he confirms, it's all true, I'm that guy. Right. The guy that you've heard of, the famous one. Yes, yes. The powerful one. Yes, that's me. Right. Is also the moment in which he's gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. Right. Uh, and I, uh, um, I love that. Right. I love that. Uh, uh, even just his acknowledgement. Quite right. Right. Quite right. Um, he doesn't you know, correct him or anything. You know, he's not like, oh, you don't have to call me the glow. You don't have to call me glow in the great or anything, right? Yeah, no, it's all fine. You know, he's just like, quite right. Yes, yes. You know, he, it's like, again, he's trying to put Frodo um, uh, at his ease, right? Um, and I do not ask, for I have already been told that you are the kinsman and adopted heir of our friend Bilbo the Renowned. Again, another very polite thing for Glowin to do, right? Like, I, I, I know who you are, right? So you don't have to introduce yourself to me or figure out how to introduce yourself to me. Uh, allow me to congratulate you on your recovery, right? So also getting it out there that I know you've been ill and everything. So now we're, we're uh, you know, on a par with what we know about each other and everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, uh, again, that, that, that paragraph does so much to show us, um, uh, to, to show us Glowen's courtesy, uh, that I find it really delightful. Um, yeah, good. Matt Violinus points out that he is after all a messenger of, of day and, and 
presumably diplomacy is one of his skills. Well, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's super good at it. I mean, he is the glowing after all, right? So, um, he has a certain position. He has a certain stature, right? Which is probably the number one reason that he was sent uh, to Elrond's house. Um, also, he has the advantage of having been there before, right? And so, being known to Elrond... Um, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily the king of tact under all circumstances. And it is also true, Belongsmond, dwarf diplomacy uh, could be quite different. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, good, good. Okay. Let's do a third slide, because we can. I love this exchange, or non-exchange. You have had some very strange adventures, I hear, said Glowen. I wonder greatly what brings four hobbits on so long a journey. Nothing like it has happened since Bilbo came with us. But perhaps I should not inquire too closely, since Elrond and Gandalf do not seem disposed to talk of this. I think we will not speak of it, at least not yet, said Frodo politely. He guessed that even in Elrond's house, the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk, and in any case, he wished to forget his troubles for a time. But I am equally curious, he added, to learn what brings so important a dwarf so far from the lonely mountain. Glowen looked at him. If you have not heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe, and then we shall all hear many things. But there is much else that may be told. Um, okay, see, Matt Pylanus says, see, that is the speech of a pro. Uh, that last one, you mean, or the first one? Both of them are pretty good, I admit, right? And again, Glowen is being super polite. Whether he's equally polite to everybody, I, we can assume this. I'm not trying to diss Glowen and assume that he's not, in fact, really courteous. Um, but, um... But yes, both, as Mad Violinist says, one for uh, uh, for intel gathering and the other for politely parrying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, he's definitely fishing for information, Lilith, no question. Um, but at the same time, this is only courtesy. Also, remember, remember, um, he knows one hobbit, right? Bilbo. So... He knows Bilbo, right? If you wanted to be courteous to Bilbo, what would you do, <laughs> right? You'd invite him to tell his own story, right? Tell me, Bilbo, what brings you on this journey, right? Tell me more about your adventures and, and how you came to be here, right? Bilbo would be delighted to ask that. Indeed, we'll see a very similar delight to that when Gandalf uh, and Elrond uh, basically do the same, right? When, when, when Elrond asks him to tell his story. Um, uh, so, you know, is, uh, is, is Glowen judging by Bilbo? Now, again, I'm not trying to say that he's not fishing for information. Glowen's job, as Mad Violinist was reminding us, is indeed ambassador from the King Under the Mountain, right? And so it certainly is part... He can tell... Something's going on, Right. It is very clear that something is happening here. They know, uh, he knows about Frodo's illness, 
right? He presumably knows what caused it. I mean, he probably knows that Frodo was pursued by ringwraiths to the fort of Bruinen and almost killed. Um, uh, almost wraithified or whatever. You know, however much detail he knows, he's got to know that Frodo was, a, was under attack by the enemy, that he barely escaped, that he barely lived. Uh, and so, obviously, there is something here, right? And Mad Violinist, as you say, his own embassy is related to the enemy as well, right? So he's got to be curious in all kinds of ways, which are understandable both personally and certainly even more understandable politically. It is his job to go back to his king with as full a report as he can get about what is happening in the world. So um, it's not only pardonable, but I think... uh, even admirable, right, that he is trying to get as much information as he can. But at the same time, this is not him, you know, just like pumping uh, pumping Bilbo for information, right? Just uh, uh, prying into, or uh, Frodo, rather, prying into Frodo's business for his own ends, right? He, I think he's also legitimately being polite. This is a... I think should seem to him a safe topic of conversation, right? Again, especially if he's judging, if he's judging, uh, um, by Bilbo, right? Um, yeah, good. As Forthauntlet was, was saying, Glowen already has some knowledge of these black riders. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, good. Um, Baruthiel was asking, and I like that name, Baruthiel was asking, her her uh, profile picture is a cat, of course, uh, why does Glowen know that nothing like this has happened since Bilbo? Does he keep tabs on hobbits? I suspect that that's courtesy also, right? Um, uh, nothing like it has happened since Bilbo came with us. Now, first of all, he might have learned that or something like that, right? Um... I don't doubt that it has come up in conversation with other elves of Rivendell, right? When he has heard about Frodo being there, and he may even have asked something along the lines of, uh, 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 of like, you know, d- does this happen a lot, right? Do hobbits often visit here? And an elf saying, no, this is the, uh, these are the first hobbits since Bilbo, uh, other than Bilbo, right? Uh, uh, you know, to come here and, generations. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do suspect that that could, he could easily have actually learned that, but even if not, even if he's just taken a stab in the dark, again, it would be a courteous thing to say. Um, again, especially if you judge by Bilbo and what Bilbo likes, right? Um, I suspect. So, um, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, Excellent. Let's see. But notice, although he is prying for information, although he is seeking information and also being courteous, he's not... um, He's not pushing, right? But perhaps I should not inquire too closely since Elrond and Gandalf do not seem disposed to speak of this, right? Right? Notice in saying that, he says, like, 
I've gotten the impression that there's something, not fishy, but something going on here, right? But he's also giving Frodo, you know, presenting Frodo with an excuse to... He knows that Frodo would feel awkward being like, uh... I, I can't tell you that, or I'm not going to tell you that, right? Yeah, he, exactly, Karita. Um, he's giving him a clear out. It does imply, uh, Crownless, that he's asked, definitely. Um, probably more than once. Probably of Elrond and Gandalf each separately, in fact, right? Um, but exactly, JJ, he's letting Frodo know that he's not going to be insulted if Frodo refuses to tell him, right? Or doesn't want to tell him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we will not speak of it, at least not yet, said Frodo politely. And that is polite, right? Um, the last part is is especially clever on Frodo's part, right? I think we will not speak of it, he says. Notice the we, right? Like, he's involving Glowin in this decision, right? Yes, I think, like, together, we are going to collectively, cooperatively engage uh, in not talking about this, right? This is not me refusing something to you, right? This is us together not talking about it, right? Um, but also, at least not yet, right? So he's not saying, like... This information is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know, right? He's not saying, this is above your security clearance, uh, my low-ranking friend, right? He's, he's not—he's making it clear, I'm sure the time will come when I can—when we can talk about this, right? It's just not right now, right? Um, at least not yet. Uh, that sense of, like, it's not because I don't have confidence in you. It's not because I think you don't deserve to know, or whatever. It's just... When the time, the, when the time comes, it's, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely not yet. Um, Gallandar says he also seems to be letting Glowen know that the decision about when to talk about it is not really his. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Lalith, he's totally leaving the door open. Uh, saying, yeah, again, we're, we're, I'm not erecting any barriers between us, right? Uh, notice, though, he's not acting under instructions, Frodo. He guessed that even in Elrond's house, the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk. Um, he's guessing about that. No one's told him not to say anything about it. Question, therefore. We can't absolutely rule out that the ring himself, the ring itself is not prompting him in this, right? Is his impulse for secrecy connected to a feeling of possessiveness of the ring, not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to share about it? He doesn't know. No one said anything about this, right? The one thing he's gotten is Gandalf... And I know I hate to tarnish this delightful, polite exchange with the idea of, like, a ring temptation coming through in, in, in Frodo's mind here. Um, uh, but the only thing we've gotten was Gandalf hushing Pippin when Pippin cheerfully called Frodo the Lord of the Ring. 
But it was not about the ring that Gandalf was hushing him, right? Evil things do not come into this valley, but all the same, we should not name them, right? The ring is in the valley right now, right? And it's not going away anytime immediately. It's Sauron, whom he does not want Pippin to name, the Lord of the Ring, right? And we talked, of course, about that passage and how I, I still think that Gandalf is not wanting to... Um, is not realizing, or Pippin is not realizing the way and the kind of implication that that phrase could have for Frodo. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, JJ says that Glowen already knows about the ring, just not its true nature. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, yet another reason to kind of question. Now, you're right, Fourth Dauntless, Gandalf did warn uh, uh, the elves that valleys have ears, right, in The Hobbit. Um, no, I'm not saying that I think it's a complete, you know, this is a like a wicked impulse of Frodo's at all. I'm just, I, I, I meant it exactly as I said it. Can we rule it out? I wonder. Um, I mean, I'm sure he's right. This is just wisdom, right? Not the ring acting on him in any way, unless it is. Unless, it, it doesn't make it any less wise. It doesn't make it any less courteous, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Mad Violinist, he is going to be unwilling to take the ring out and show it to folks on at least two significant occasions, right, here in Rivendell. Um, yeah, I agree, Matt, that he's acting out of courtesy rather than out of wanting something. But his politeness is about... His, he, he's declining politely, which is an adverb describing how he says it, right? Uh, and it is certainly, so whatever his motivations may or may not be, it is certainly politely said. There's no question about that. Um, and in any case, he wished to forget his troubles for a time. My... I would not want to make a strong argument in this direction. I would certainly not say, like, oh yeah, this is clear evidence of the ring affecting him. What I would say, though, is that the pattern that we see in the ring, the way that the ring informs rationalizations, right, sounds like this. <laughs> when it happens, it sounds like this. Um, he guessed that even in Elrond's house the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk. And in any case, he wished to forget his troubles for a time. In fact, even syntactically, it reminds me of the sentence uh, in which, uh, remember when the Black Rider is approaching him in the Shire? Right? And in any case, he was still in the Shire. Right? Um, Gandalf's advice seemed absurd. Uh, it's, I'm not saying it's the same. It's nothing like his strong... 
Again, all I'm saying is, I'm not saying this is definitely and clearly a ring temptation. I'm just saying that ring temptations do sound like this, right? And it's probably fine. Honestly, I think the potential uh, ambiguity of this... um, Oh, and a couple of you are asking, like, does this align with, like, how we normally see the ring acting? Yeah, actually. I think it does. Um, One of the... I mean, possession, secrecy, like, to to keep it to himself, not to share it uh, or show it to anyone else, right? That's, to me, seems in line uh, with uh, uh, the hold of the ring on people. But again, my point is simply even the ambiguity here is nice. It's good, right? Frodo's not a slave to the ring yet, but is we know he is being affected by the ring. We know he's already being changed by the ring. Um, uh, and uh, um the mere fact that even some of these positive impulses, it's like once you start asking the question, am I rationalizing? Right? Then like any reason can sound like rationalization. Right? The very uncertainty there is, uh, like the very ambiguity seems to me to be kind of a part of the insidiousness of the way that the ring influences mind, influences his mind. He's probably not, he's not probably not influenced by the ring here, though he is thinking about the ring and he is keeping it to himself and no one told him to do that. Right. But it's probably wise. I think this is the right plan. Right. Absolutely. I think that he's good. It's, it's good that he did this. Um, but it's also, what I think the ring would want him to do or what the desire for the ring would lead him to do. And I'm, 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 saying, I'm not sure that that's a coincidence, that that ambiguity, that that um, alignment of things is a coincidence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um and exactly, JJ, that's the point. Reason to say is to some extent always rationalization. I mean, there's what's the difference, right? How do you tell the difference? It's really hard, sometimes really hard, right? Uh, I mean, that's the whole point about a rationalization is that you've got you've got really good reasons all lined up, right? Um, it makes perfect sense why you should why you should do this. Um, uh, absolutely, no. I mean, and, and it's it's yeah. He absolutely should keep it secret. Totally. Prudent. Right? I'm sure. Just what Gandalf would want him to do. Right? That's just, he should totally keep it to himself. Right? (laughs) I I just... I think that's interesting. That's all. That's all. Um, But I am equally curious to learn what brings so important a dwarf so far from the Lonely Mountain. Courteous. Right? giving him an, uh, a courteous reciprocation, right? Glowin looked at him. If you have not heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. 
Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe, and then we shall all hear many things, but there is much else that may be told. Um, if you have not heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. I forget who it was. Um, uh, somebody was asking... Um, So somebody was asking, like, why does he say if you have not heard, right? I mean, like, how would he have heard? Well, remember, he's had Gandalf in with him all the time, right? He, Glowen, doesn't know how thoroughly, uh, how thoroughly, uh, he, that is, how thoroughly, uh, oops, sorry, a little notification from my children, excellent, um, uh, God. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, how thoroughly uh, uh, Gandalf has briefed him about stuff, right? Gandalf knows what has brought Glowen. Gandalf has been closeted with Frodo. Uh, one of the things that I think seems to me to kind of underlie that expression, um, if you have not heard... I think we will not yet speak of that either. Um, there seems to be an uncertainty about, like, how important is Frodo? How much in Gandalf's confidence is Frodo? Is are like Elrond, Gandalf, and Frodo? Are they like the inner circle here? Right? Uh, I mean, is Frodo's sent on this like important mission? Unlike Bilbo, who tagged along with the dwarves, right? Um. Instead, you know, uh, it's like they, they, you know, came accompanied by, uh, you know, helped in the end along their journey by Aragorn and Glorfindel, right? I mean, this, this is an important guy, maybe? He doesn't know, right? He knows his connection to Bilbo, and he knows that his the arrival of Frodo was for some reason a really big deal, and that the enemy was hunting him, Frodo, right? So... Maybe he already knows, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if you have not heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. Um, the, oh, and I forgot the glow and looked at him, right? Glow and looked at him. If you have not heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. Um, what is he trying to assess when he looks at... Uh, when he looks at Frodo, my understanding of that is um, he, Glowen, was just politely seeking information from Frodo. And it's clear from the Elrond and Gandalf comment that he, Glowen, has been attempting to find out this information. Who is this hobbit, Bilbo's nephew, and why is his coming here such a big deal? Something's going on here. What is it? He's been trying to find it out, and he just asked Frodo himself, though very courteously, gave him an easy out if he wanted it, right? Frodo, I think, without realizing it, is reciprocating, not only recipro reciprocating asking about, you know, Glowen asks about his journey, he'll ask about Glowen's journey, right? He's, he's, recipro he's reciprocating in that simple sense. Glowen seems to me to be wondering if Frodo is reciprocating in the 
intel gathering sense, Mad Violinist, uh, as you were suggesting before, right? Um, Frodo has indeed asked a rather penetrating question, right? Touching on, like, the one thing that Glowen is not super comfortable talking about in public, right? And it's interesting that that should... It seems interesting to Glowen that that should be the first question that Frodo asks about, right? Um, Now, it's... I'm not saying it's not a perfectly logical question, right? Uh, You know, that it defies coincidence that that would be the first thing that Frodo asks. But again, he just seems to be wondering, like... How much does Frodo know? How much does he... like? Is he trying to figure this out, or is he just being polite? Right? And he seems to conclude that Frodo is just being polite, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Matt says, uh, I suspect he's trying to determine if Frodo has heard about Sauron... Uh, asking after Baggins is at the Lonely Mountain. Yeah, exactly. Like it, uh, does Frodo know that something's going on that maybe he personally should know about, right? Exactly. So, so he looks at him. You know, how pointed was that question? Um, not, uh, not pointed, right? I think if you haven't heard, I think we will not speak yet of that either. And he reciprocates the yet notice. Right? Not stonewalling you. Let's just maybe not here and now. Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe, and then we shall all hear many things. Um, so notice he um, not quite one-ups Frodo, but um, when Frodo said, at least not yet, he was speaking vaguely, right? Holding out the prospect of some point in the future when things would be different and it would be okay to talk about it. Um, Gandalf, or not Gandalf, Glowin, right, um, has a different thought, right? He knows a little bit more about what's happening and what's likely to happen. Um, Most likely, they have been taught, he, Glowin, has been put off by uh, Elrond, right, as Glowin has come to ask Elrond this question, right, and talk to Bilbo and talk to Elrond and maybe talk to Gandalf, and he's probably been getting stalled by Elrond, right, who's certainly told him, we're going to have a council, right? We're going to call everybody together and then everything, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll hash all of this out at the big council, right? Um, Glowen surely has been told that. Frodo hasn't been told that, right? Glowen is, is, is telling him that here. Um, and, uh, Jez, it is interesting that the word summoned is used. That's a fascinating word there, here. Um, uh, and she says, especially when we learn that indeed those that arrived for the council were not summoned, but just happened to arrive at the same time. Yeah, now, when he says summoned, he means like to a council, right? Like, you know, come to this room at this time of day, right? So um, when Elrond finally decides to throw the council, like then, then they'll be summoned to that room in order to have the council. But I agree, there's still some irony there, right? Um uh, that I, it certainly plants this idea of Elrond at the center having gathered all of these people together, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It is the long-expected council uh, to Glowen, no question. <laughs> Riven moot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, 
Good. Um, so then we shall all hear many things, he says vaguely, but there is still much else that may be told. Um, an excellent conversational gambit by uh, the very proficient. So, you know, Mad Violinist, if ever it looked like I was suggesting that Glowen was not a good diplomat, uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly take back any potential implication. He's very good, right? He's very fluid. Not say, I'm just saying we can't necessarily assume that a door, that he would be just because he was sent by Dan. You could send somebody whose skill, number one skill was not diplomacy uh, in, that, uh, in that situation. But it's clear. It's clear that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, Dan sent his A-team here. Um, yeah. But there is much else that may be told. So after this non-start to the conversation, right, as, as the both of them ask the questions that they both, you know, that, that they first think of, that they want to have answers to, and neither one of them is willing to talk about it, this conversation seems to be doomed to social failure, right? But Glowen, of course, saves it uh, at the last second here. But there is much else that may be told. If he hadn't said that, it would be really easy to lapse into awkward silence, right? Then we shall all hear many things. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thus having slain any possibility for us to talk about anything now. But he immediately extends that, right? There is much else that may be told. Um, let us leave these two, like, having identified immediately the topics of conversation that we shouldn't have, let's talk about literally anything else. Um, uh, yeah, no, they're about to, to speak of the much that could be told after this. I am tempted to move on rashly, uh, and ambitiously to our fourth slide of the evening, um, but I think I'm not going to, because it's getting late. Uh, and uh, one of the... I, I'm, I'm trying to reform my ways and uh, let everybody go a little bit earlier than I've been doing lately. So um, I'm going to... We're going to stop there. And then, of course, we'll go on to the actual conversation between uh, between Glowen and Frodo next week. Um, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so yes, he does speak of uh, much that is to be told there and then, Lilith. But we shall not. We shall wait until next week uh, to uh, uh, to speak of that. I know, I know, Matt. It was a little heady here this evening, right? I'm kind of I'm all of a muck sweat, having pushed our way through three entire passages. I'm, whew. Um, I don't know even how many paragraphs did we do? Like eight? Good grief. I'm going to fan myself or something at this point. Um, but anyway, so we'll we'll stop there. Uh, field trip time. Um, we'll say goodbye, as always, to the folks on Twitter. And bye to uh, the... Um uh, the folks, uh, uh, the folks on the talent as well. Um, and, uh, we will, uh, we'll finish, I uh, will finish, I say, we'll continue the conversation between Frodo and Glowen next week. So we'll be switching over just to the Twitch channel. Good night to everybody else. There we go. Okay. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. All right. I'm on as Jonathan tonight. 
Okay, very good. Yeah, that was that was impressive. Like, like feel the Whew, burn. I know exactly. Yeah, feel thank the... you, sir. May I have another slide? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Cool. So let's um, uh, let's head out to Kellendim again, All since right. it's easier to travel there. Burn horseshoe. From Bree, then to try to go to Duoland directly, which we really can't do, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You have to go to Kalondim and then take right. the stable to Duoland. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Wow. Auroron so was what... uh, was saying uh, it would be a beautiful thought to be sending the ring south on December 25th. Um, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think we could do it actually. I think we could, you know, we could get to the Ringo South by Christmas of 2020. That seems very possible. I assume that you weren't thinking of this year, of course, for sending the ring South. 2025. <laughs> Yeah, uh, when did we start? Um, like, on what date? Does anyone remember? I, I mean, it's like class number 16 20, already of the... I think it's 2017. It was 2017, though, right? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking of that. When when did we start this chapter? Oh, <laughs> said, oh, this right. chapter. This oh. chapter. When did we start this chapter? Um oh. Because it's been, I know, 15 sessions. So it was yes. sometime this year. Um, we were talking about the flight to the Ford. I want to say Easter, but... Earlier, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, I don't even have the Calendim, uh Stable Master on this server, so... Oh, look, I can go to Duoland. Let's go! Yeah, from here we can, yes. I'm just going to horse up. Okay. Anyway, so Lilith is guessing April, maybe? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, April, mid-April or something. Maybe. Um, that's fine. Yeah, okay. So it's been uh, April uh, to July, and we're still not to the A. Arendel poem yet. Yeah. Uh, we're still several weeks away after the conversation with Glow and then we'll finally get to the Hall of Fire and then he'll meet Bilbo. We have to Bilbo. dinner first. Right, yeah. we'll finish dinner and then we're gonna meet Bilbo and then have a conversation with Bilbo and Bilbo like, you know, seeing the ring and asking lots of questions and talking about his poetry and Aragorn coming over and saying hi, right, and then... A couple um, of jokes back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Uh, less, uh, more jo uh, less jokes, more convivial ribbing kind of thing. Right. And that's all happening before the poem starts, and then we get the poem. Uh, longest poem in The Lord of the Rings, I'm pretty sure. And then we get... Um, uh, and then, of it's course, we still like get Baron more after that. At the end, it's going to be one in the morning, and then you're going to say, sorry, Valori. <laughs> hey, see, wasn't I better tonight? I was better tonight. Uh, yes, was... no, you were doing great. No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wasn't mad. I was actually kind of laughing at the time. Well, laughing and snoring a bit. But... Yes, yes. Yes, well, the Baron and Luthien class, that was different. 
Um, it's a beautiful poem, though. I mean, I, I love I love hearing it every time. Yes. All right. So, our primary, our first quest here tonight, and darn it, I didn't look around more in Killendine before I left. Oh, well. Um, So, I'm going to, I'm going to conclude, based on the similarities between Duolund and the Vineyard that we were noticing last time, that the Vineyard is not a completely different stratum, it is just in disrepair. Right? Mm-hmm. Same general yes. time period, but in disrepair. And um, we think recently. Right, right. Quite likely very recently, possibly even, as I think Matt was pointing out, as recently as the time when the new wars with the Dower Hands began. Right? Okay. Um, that would make sense within the game world, within the game world of Arid Lewin. Right? Um, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. Anyway, so we want to look at statuary. So, help me scour Duolun for statuary. We have this fish, right? This fish fountain yeah. that we already saw. Yeah, the fish fountain. We know there's some at the foot of the river. If you go down to the, the watchtower down here near the festival area. Near the festival area. Okay, hang on a second. Yeah. Let me come back around. I want to come around by the statue that we saw last that we found last time and then continue searching from the other mystery statue exactly the avatar of humanity yes exactly that was our that was our best theory human dude with Amish beard and sword and no crown and no armor and sword at in peaceful posture right with the tip grounded into the ground Oh, it's much. It's a much nicer day today than it was the last time we were here. I can see yeah. so much further. Good you can grief. see so much wear and tear on the statue. <laughs> like, yeah, one thing I didn't really notice, which seems interesting. I'm kind of standing on each side of the statue to look. All right, I'm trying to stand right in front in the way that he's pointed. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's looking right up the river. At the fortress that the Dower Hands now yes, occupy. That is the Dower Hand fortress down there. Um, that was, I've, I, memory fails me here. Was it an elven place that's now overrun by dwarves, or was it always a dwarven place? Well, we'll have to see. That we should be able to figure out easily by the architecture, but. Right, so he's looking up the River Loon now. So, again, thinking of like, why would you posture your avatar of humanity looking uh, straight up the river and just beyond that that um that bend in the river is the ward spire i believe right right so that's this part is really the extent of the elven settlements right yes yeah oh excellent puntine says we started this chapter on march 12th there we go Okay. Thank you, Ponting. March 12th. So it's been almost exactly four months that we've been studying this so far. Yeah, we'll get to the Council of Elrond well before Christmas. But given that we will probably be doing many meetings for like something like seven months at least, yeah. proportionally speaking, the Council of Elrond is likely to be longish. Yeah, I mean... JJ's, I think, was, I think, uh, 
JJ calculated that we'd have at least one class on the seating arrangement at the council yeah, hall run. I'm like, possibly. one class? <laughs> possibly. Um, see, Amethorn, I can't imagine that the statue is designed for like people who are coming that way, because that's really far away. Like From down there, there's no way they could see this statue. Yeah, it's not like the big... Uh... It's not, it's not a not colossal statue. Or an, yeah, um, exactly. On there, on there, you know. Exactly. I don't think it could be seen from there. It's more like... Nor is it especially... See, I mean, I was kind of guessing... Last time we were sort of thinking that it was kind of looking up towards... You know, in the vaguely, like... Hangmar-ish direction. But it's not really. I mean, it's kind of towards Evendim. General direction of Evendim. Um, you might be looking at the the dwarf made road be- road below us, down here, right down there. Yeah, maybe because that's a thing he could watch and think people would be able to see him. Maybe. Want to go down there and see if we can see it? But see, it's especially yeah, it's especially weird though that they would have yes. a human statue here. I mean, like. And now, representing the city of... The, like, so here you are, going by, right? You, and this is, yeah. in fact, what you do. If you're coming down, like, from Thorin's Hall, and you're right, you're uh-huh. doing a slow horse or something like that, you come down here, and this is how you pass by Duolon without going into it. So you look up, and yeah, yeah it's pretty clear to be seen from up there. These little mushroom gill yeah, <laughs> towers there. So you pass by, and here he is, right? Looking down at you, you see his sword, mostly. Right. Yeah, but that's still, uh, ominous. It is a little bit ominous. It does look more like he's saying nobody try anything. <laughs> it kind of does. It, it didn't really look like a "I'm warning you" statue from up <laughs> there, from down here. It certainly looks well, a anything bit more lurking like over you is very dominant. Yeah. yeah, he's got the winning argument right now. No other statuary visible from here. That's the only yeah. one, and it's a human statue. What? Really interesting. I have no idea what their connection to humans might be. Is there any other way up? Or is it all just... That's it. No, that's it, right? Yeah, yeah look, we're in waterfall oh, uh, area. Arurian has pointed out that um, they're getting a half-elven vibe from him because even though he's a human, he's wearing elven clothes. That's a good well, point. Well, he is wearing elven clothes. That's true. That's true. It, Sorry, just looking at yeah. the cobblestones. Um, but, you know, it's not like half-elf is, you know, a yeah. standard item, right? I mean, there's a small well, number that, of those. They're Yeah, but they're rare enough they would get a statue. Well, well sure. But, again, if you're going to yeah. make a statue, I mean, who's that meant to be then? Like, I don't know. And his clothes do remind me of all the black Numenorians we see. Maybe. Makes me wonder if regular Numenorians dress like this. Maybe. I could imagine it. Yeah, but I've got to think, if it were Elros, Elrond's brother, uh-huh. as Matt was suggesting, I mean, surely he would be depicted crowned. Surely. Hard to imagine that he wouldn't be depicted crowned. Anyway, I'm not just going to... I'm kind of going around trying not to Rivendell any of the bridges. And... <laughs> Or like any of these cliffs. Oh. Yeah, oh, 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 oh! Check out out here on the st- on the staircase. We got these tower spires that are going below the building, just like mirroring the ones on the top of the building. Wait, what? Down here? Yeah, come down here. Down here, halfway up. 
-hmm. Look at the bottom side. We have these upside-down spires. Oh. Yeah, the Space Invaders things. Yeah. Yeah, little jet boosters. Right. Oh, yeah. And and this is the closest we get to see them anywhere. Yeah, you can see the underside of these these uh, sort of platforms have this very mushroom-like look with all the gothic arches in their lap. Yeah. Oh, but then I, the upside yeah. down spires. Yeah. Like, yeah, is no. it like supposed to be like a reflection? Are we supposed to imagine it's a reflection <laughs> of the building or something? Yeah, I don't know. That's actually really interesting. <laughs> it's very weird. It oh, somebody weird. mentions it's got a Cloud City vibe. I'm like, yeah, it you can like hang like Cloud from City, that. right, exactly. Yeah, sure. You can hang. Yeah. Waiting for your sister to come Waiting pick you up. Si- exactly. Yeah. In case you do need to telepathically summon someone, you could do it from one of those spires. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, and they're up on top of the gazebos, too. Unlike yeah, statues. Yeah, it's interesting... Yeah, it's interesting the underside doesn't have the same texture as the roof, especially if they're going for that mirrored look. Yeah. Huh. That's kind of cool. Well, but you know what else But I don't see? Any other statues? Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, wait, I do see some more statues. Oh, where? Where? Night by the watchtower down there. They're on the... Are those guys always there? Wait, who? Down there? Yeah, the watchtower down there. Oh, that tower. I think it's the same statues. It is the same statues. Oop, I just fell off a cliff, but that's okay. It was I don't a small think I've, I don't think I've ever noticed the statues. Yeah, this is the same dude. Huh? Yeah, that's the same dude. Okay, hang on. Who's this dude then? Oh, he's got a shield. Oh, and hang on. A stick. A sh- shield and a. And a stick. And the shield has like some sort of, what, what is that, a water texture on it? Whoa. I wish I could get a better look at it. It's so hard to get a look at this. Come on. Ugh. What is that? A scepter? It's got to be a scepter. Yes. What else yes, could that sure be? I mean, like... that does not look functional. Like a weapon. Yeah. And he's got a hood and... No, it's his hair. It's hair. Oh, that's his hair. Yeah. So dude... Michael Prade look. With hair and a circlet. Is that... See, I wasn't sure that the other dude had a circlet. But this is... He's got something bound on his brow. That looks like it could be the Wendelmere. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the Wendelmere, which means that might be the scepter of a Numinous. Yeah, yeah. Which means this would be a Wendel? Yes, I think so. And is it just me, or is he... No, he's not significant. He's a little bit taller than the other dude. Okay. I don't know. All right. <laughs> that I so, can't tell. So th- I can't pan out enough. So, okay, theory then. Okay. Theory. It's a Lendo. And it looks nothing. So, like, the things that we were not seeing, that we were looking for, things like armor and crowns and stuff like that, right? Um, yes. That, that 
shows us the difference between how the elves are choosing to depict Elendil and how the humans choose to depict Elendil, right? Because those, all of those, yeah. you know, crown like helmed warrior statues that we see up around Evendim, for instance, um, and those are all human ones. Those are only Minorian statues, right? So here mm-hmm. he's shown at peace. Peace and rather wise looking with the robes instead of ready for action. Exactly. Wearing robes. And so the same would be true of whoever his presumably junior assistant is. I say junior because although the other one is bearded, whereas Elendil's is not bearded, if this is Elendil, um, then... I just marched right up to you. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one is, the other one is bearded. Uh, yes. Which normally would suggest, like, you know, greater venerability of, you know, everybody knows that people with beards are super wise, right? Uh, and probably old. But... Um, and like craft beer. <laughs> right. But I don't think... The beard on the other statue, it's not a full beard. I guess it's just, it's just like a little chin... It's like a little Amish beard. He's got, you know, with the mustache. Yeah, he's got an Abraham Lincoln beard. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Chin strap. Chin strap beard. Um, which is what suggests to me that, you know, he's younger. And even though he's bearded, uh, he's probably younger than the Oendel guy. Uh, yeah, the panning here is really challenging. Okay. I know. They really did not want us to see this. Yeah. It's almost like they didn't assume we were going to be standing here scrutinizing every bit of these statues. <laughs> When trying to like, back all the way off the edge. 11 but... years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, we don't know. Um, we don't know for sure that this person is human. With the other person's ears, we can see clearly. So yes. the dude with the chin strap beard and the sword is definitely human. Or again, arguably possibly half elven can't rule that out, I agree. Um yes. but this one could be either way. I say human, I say Elendil because of the stone. Because the there's criminal. clearly there's clearly a gem bound right in the center of his brow there. Oh yeah. 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 Um, so that looks like the Wendell Mirror. Okay. I'm wondering if some of the discrepancies of human wear and elven wear and, and you know, what, what they wear on their heads if they're in authority and that sort of thing. It's like, it could be conceivably one of those, this is just an elven point of view that's done with very little insider research into human lifestyles. Right, they're just like, he looks too plain, let's give him a decoration on his forehead. Well, you know, humans were... No, 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 don't tell me. But I know what a king's supposed to wear. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right. right. But the scepter, right? I mean, come on. They're not going to make up that scepter. That's way too dumb-looking a scepter to be invented. So yes. let's say that's the scepter of Enuminous. And so now, Edith Eldora, is this supposed to be the place where Elendil came out of the sea to Middle-earth? Um, well, hmm. 
I'm about to say certainly not, but actually, maybe. I mean, we know that he's going to settle at Enuminus, right? Enuminus is his city, but maybe he did land up here. I don't think we're told exactly where Olinda lands. No. I mean, he is looking across to, um, I think we noticed a close proximity to Evendim. Yeah, I mean, you would, you could certainly get there. right? I mean, you can't get there in game but it certainly seems that you could i mean you you can go around and go up the brandywine river too but the river loon is shorter and uh if he landed in this area he would i mean we're told i think we are told aren't we told that he you know he hooked up with gilgalad soon after he arrived um yes so i would think that it would have been in the gulf of loon that he probably would have landed, and so he probably would have sailed up this way. Yeah, that, at least, Oruoran is... Uh, no, wait. It was somebody else who suggested that. Oh, no, it was uh, uh, Edith Aldora. Um, right. It is certainly possible. That would at least explain why we're having Numenorean statues here at all in a place which otherwise doesn't seem to have anything to do with Numenoreans. I like that theory. Let's imagine that Elendil did land up here. And they're like, okay, our friend Elendil, Scepter of Enuminous. Elendil uh, mirror strapped on his forehead. This is how we... I'm not sure about the shield. I think the sword and the shield are clearly designed to be companion pieces, especially since you know, they're both holding them in their left hands, not in the same posture with their hands, but at the same angle from their bodies. So we have both of these statues sort of remember war, right? With the sword and the shield. But neither one of them are armed as if for war. They're holding him as they're souvenirs of war. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And of course, I still have to... um, I still have to uh, imagine that it's weird. Now, the shield, yeah, there's just nothing clear on that shield. Looks pretty weather-worn. It now, is, I think but... there is a there's another statue at the bottom here where the, the ravine goes down. Is there? Yes. I believe so. Over here? At least uh, on the other side of the river. But this is the best way to get there. The other side of the river. Okay. Before anyone just jumps down there, there is a path. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> I say anyone, meaning anyone. Now, what's... Is that the uh, yep, housing yep. developments yes. over there? Uh, um, yes, those are the housing developments. And no, you can't swim there. I've tried. Okay. All right. All right. Descending the path. Ooh. That is lovely. Uh-huh. And that is different. Looks like it's holding something... Also, but in its right hand, not its left. Okay. Here we go. There's one of them. Whoa. It is the same guy, just a mirror image statue. Uh huh. 
No, le no left hand at all. Can you see his buddy up there? Yeah, you can see him. Star-crossed mirror twins. Where is he? Way up there? No. Where did he go? Oh, there he is. Right. Yep. Yeah, I know. The grass is really tall here. So. Yeah, okay. And this... Interesting. This is a ruin. There's... there's. I mean, apart from the fact that the statue's got its arm broken off. Yeah. There was also clearly... Uh, sorry, go ahead. But, but look at this. It's completely boxed in. What was this place? It's like they made this little what shrine so there were these four pillars i'm trying to figure out what the construction must have been these four pillars with the like you know that filigree what mm -hmm. dome or well, life is asking could this be the landing spot of elendil could this be a historical marker oh yeah that it's is pokemon interesting stuff. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. There's probably a there's probably a Pokemon gym here. Um, uh, yeah. Why would they let it to go into disrepair like that, though? I know if it's so important. And not that far away. Well, uh, consider the time ratio. Maybe right, a few I mean, hours we traveled, away? right? The, the amount that we traveled is. Mm -hmm. You know. But also look at the dwarf architecture that's right next to it. You wonder if that usurped something or disturbed something, knocked over something. Right. Hey. What does that, that have that something wheel to do with it? On the, uh, what wheel? Wheel? On the base of the pillar. Oh, Maker's Mark? You know what it really looks like? Looks like a Christian symbol with an alpha yes, and omega. Yes, it looks like a Cairo. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. It looks like the Cairo, which is a Christian mm -hmm. symbol. Um, a very early Christian symbol. Yes. Interesting. I wonder if that's just a little Easter egg that the developers put in. Hmm. They also got Omega and Alpha backwards, and the uh, and the row, I believe. Yeah, is no, backwards. they're 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 yeah, the row is backwards, but yeah, there there they are on the base of the pillars. I mean, I'm sure there's a perfectly dwarvish explanation for that symbol, but of course now I'll be looking for that symbol when we get to dwarvish architecture and the rest of. Yeah, I wonder if it's mirrored on the other side, and that's why it's backwards. Hmm. No, I think... I can't see it super clearly, but looking at the one over there... Let's see. No, it is backward. It is the other way. Yes. It is mirrored. The one's at the base on the far side of the river. I embroidered it on a quilt patch for my son for his first communion. I remember that symbol pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> that took hours. Interesting. Interesting. And you're right, I didn't even see the Alpha and Omega. Huh. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a piece of Christian iconography, which I do suspect of being just kind of... There's another one at the at the pylon over here down in the water. Yeah. There's backwards and forwards all over all over on the the foot of the, the pylons over here. Yes. Is that the correct word? Yeah. Um, See now it's facing forward on this side. Wait, where is it? I'm not seeing it over here. Uh, oh, on the underside, huh? up, up there on the... No, in the water, down here in, in the water. In the water? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, right, okay, under the under the water level, sorry. Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking at the right angle, or at the correct angle, I should say. Well, now I can't see it at all. I could have second ago. There it is. Yep. Now it's facing forward. Exactly. With the Cairo correct and the Alpha and Omega on the right, on the correct sides. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, and and obviously the difference in architecture is plain. I mean, this is dwarvish because it's the dwarf road. And this is elvish. But I uh, wonder what is wondering if we're thinking. Right. Hmm. Aurora is wondering if we're too far ahead. You know, could these be first age figures instead of third age figures? Um, You know, suggesting something like Beor and Fingolfin. Um, Like this is the outskirts of Elvis Settlement in Balerion and then became a nearer point? It's possible. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, running ahead to see if there was another statue, but I think that was it. I'm just double checking. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm resistant to first stage figures in general. But not for any good reason, or rather only because of cheating. That, <laughs> that is to say, there's no internal internal to the game reason that I can necessarily cite to say, oh no, they wouldn't be depicting somebody like, um, you know, Finrod Felugund or something like that. I mean, the primary reason I think that, to be honest, is that I think that the Lotro developers are too careful and, you know, generally avoid the Silmarillion, the non-Lord of the Rings Silmarillion stuff. You might say, well, but Luthien is depicted. Right, but Luthien's in the Lord of the Rings uh, quite prominently and many times. Um, Also, the costume choice being a Numinous, looking very much like a Numinous wear just can't be a coincidence. Yeah... No, I'm I, I'm still thinking it's it's local. I'm still thinking it's local. Uh, 
But yeah, no, see, the people were talking who were commenting on the age of the statues. I don't think that they have to be from the first age. They just have to be remembering the first age. So that's yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, no, the life I agree. The the randomness of this statue, and not only its randomness, like, we're just going to erect a statue on this field next to the river in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> but, like you do. Exactly. But the fact that they also built this, like, big trellis thing around it, right, does suggest to me that this is... So, h- historical marker really works for me here. Like, that would totally justify it. Even the sense in which this... You know, this path which is now neglected, that we just came down from Duolon to get here. And I had never been down that path before. I had never even seen this place before. Um, never noticed this. Never even accidentally fell off the bridge and ended up down here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I think I've... I very rarely crossed that bridge, actually. Hmm. Because I almost never just ride from Arid Lewin into, like, through the Shire or whatever. I mean, like... Well, if I'm not mistaken, you haven't played with an elf character either, because uh, this hill is part of an elven quest to collect herbs. Hmm. They send you down here pretty early. I did play an elvish character, but it was... I was not doing completionist Arid Lewin with that character. Uh-huh. So, anyway... um. Anyway, so, uh, but yeah, so I like that. I'm going to go with the Elendil historical marker. I'm with you, Lilith. I think this is good. I, I, I want to imagine that this is the very spot that Elendil landed. And if you ask, why would Elendil land on this random piece of beach? I have an answer to that question. Because he right. sees the elvish city up on the hill. And he's like, oh. hey. Because now Kellendim is newer. I'm coming up with this theory on the top of my head, but Kellendim is newer, right? So, he, uh, there's no Kellendim, right? So he's coming up the river past where Kellendim will someday be, but then he gets up here and and they're like, hey, look, elf towers up on the cliffside. Let's go, like, meet them and talk that over. So they land the ships here, and then they, like, take their their boats across and go up the hill and meet the elves. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah. 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 I buy that. Uh, any theories as to why it's in disrepair right now? Well, see, that seems important, doesn't it? Uh-huh. It suggests that the... It is isolated, Lilith, and it suggests to me that the elves of modern-day Dueland are more focused on leaving Middle-earth than they are on, like, they're looking forward, not back, in a sense. And they're looking west, not east. I I have to note that the gold filigree is very similar to all the runes that we'd seen during that one age of decline, so I do get the feeling that this was built then and then abandoned just like everything else from that era was. Yes, this looks like it could be from the party era. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, where they apparently had more time on their hands. Right. 
So yeah, so the elves of Duoland no longer, like, they probably wouldn't be making, you know, statutes to Numenorians now, right? <laughs> um, gauche now. Exactly. Right. That, that, was, that was so several millennia ago. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be maintaining the historical marker. But you gotta believe that, like, uh, when Aragorn comes through here, he's gonna he's gonna set this up again. Yeah, I think so. He's gonna be well, like, "Dude, you I, I let like... Elendil's arm fall off." Eh, it was a busy decade. Yeah, well, you know, we're century. Yeah. Or, you, know. you wonder if there's some bitterness attached to it too, because we are seeing a decline in the age of the elves and beginning the age of men. Right. Yeah, maybe. It's definitely one of those. Let them fix their own statues. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. We'll leave them to, you know, uh, do the washing after we... <laughs> exactly. After we've left. <laughs> yeah. That's a great analogy. This is, the, this is the elves leaving the dishes for the men. <laughs> exactly. That's it. That's it. Yep. Yep. I think that's exactly what's happening here. Okay. Good. Well, that was some excellent... Uh, and so now you'll notice that we now have some, su- before, like, I didn't have any theories about Duolon, right? But now we have some theories that it was theory number one, that it was the original city, right? Kelendam was later and Duolon was here first, um, which is of course already suggested by the presence of the dwarf road passing right by it, right? Uh, but not in it because it's the dwarf road. So it doesn't go through the middle of town. It just passes right nearby, uh, out of politeness, you know, but, um, um, but still, like, making it possible to go around it. Um, yeah. You know, the dwarves are grumbling about needing a more level grade, or, you know, this would have been <laughs> ten times more efficient. Right, right. Um, anyway, yes, and to have this have been a point of contact, yeah, that works for me. Um, as you said, it, we're, we're almost past where the elvish uh, uh, sort of influence stretched in the older days except for, except for one point which is up near thorns gate right right exactly yeah but then right if he sailed on up the river loon he would soon be past it finding his own you know crib out there in, in, in uh, lake <laughs> Evendon. so okay cool that works all right so next time we will continue on we'll go up to uh Keladul. Khaledul and uh, uh, and then up into the Hathlin maybe um, up to the where's that where's that monument the watch what is it called the watch st- uh, the, the ward spire the ward spire that's the one yeah we'll go maybe we'll find the ward spire that's up in Hothlin that's, that's yeah. quite a ways away well that's what I'm thinking we'll, we'll head up in that direction next time anyway. we'll, we'll stay we'll by the river for now yeah. I guess alright exactly because um, I want to I want to finish doing the like the Elvish country, before we come back around to, eh, you know, Gondaman and 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 the the dwarf places there. All right. All right. Oh, excellent. Thanks everybody uh, for uh, um, for a fun field trip as usual. I'm learning a great deal about Arid Lewin, doing some excellent archaeo gaming here, and um, <laughs> we can. Uh, uh, I will look forward to continuing further next week. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next Tuesday. 
Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.